Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. I'm really excited about the topic we're going to cover today. But before we begin, I want to announce our first sponsor for this podcast, Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. Carbon Future support helps me continue to deliver this podcast without impacting the content I cover or the guests I have on. So thank you to Carbon Future for being a great partner. And thank you to this podcast's growing audience of dedicated listeners. Today, we're going to talk about something that I think is absolutely foundational for successfully scaling up carbon removal, or CDR, and that's social license and community engagement. All too often, promising large-scale projects fall by the wayside because they fail to capture the imagination of the public, and they fail to build trust with the communities that have a real stake in the project, which can have serious negative consequences. With new large-scale CDR projects being announced, and more information on the Department of Energy's $3.5 billion Direct Air Capture Hubs program around the corner, I couldn't think of a better time to cover this topic. My guest has not just polled voters about their perceptions of CDR, but has engaged communities that could potentially be on the front lines of carbon removal deployment. We talk about public perceptions of CDR, the importance of responsible carbon removal scale-up, and incorporating community engagement as part of the DOE's planned DAC Hubs program. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to connect or collaborate on something with me directly, head over to carboncurve.co and get in touch. Okay, I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Selena Scott Buechler, Senior Resident Fellow at Data for Progress. Data for Progress is a nonprofit polling firm and policy think tank. DFP runs two national omnibus surveys each week, gauging public perceptions on a variety of policy issues, and uses these data to advance progressive causes. Selena is the Senior Resident Fellow for Climate Innovation at Data for Progress, where she leads DFP's work on progressive carbon removal solutions, removing gigatons of past greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere by developing equitable, community-beneficial, and environmental justice-centered strategies. Selena holds a master's in atmospheric science from Cornell University and is working toward a PhD in environment and resources at Stanford University. Selena, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today because the subject matter that you focus on, you know, the equitable community beneficial environmental justice centered strategies for deploying carbon removal, these are really important issues. And I think they sometimes get lost in the excitement around new technologies or, you know, big funding rounds, uh, claims made about driving down the cost of carbon removal or ambitious kind of project launch announcements. But I think the long-term success of carbon removal is going to depend on the safe, responsible deployment of these technologies and and the buy-in that they get from the variety of stakeholder groups that are involved. And so I'm really glad that we're going to have, over the course of this conversation, an opportunity to learn what you've been learning through your work studying some of these issues. So, you know, before we get into that, I wanted to hear a bit more about your background. How did you get involved and interested in carbon removal in the first place? 
Yeah, look, I, I came to this topic as a skeptic, and I think that has been really useful uh, in my ongoing work as a progressive in this space. I bought into the idea of kind of the moral hazard. If we offer the opportunity to take past emissions out of the atmosphere, that absolves industry and policymakers from needing to rapidly decarbonize. And it was really the 2018 IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees that hammered home the point that whether we liked it or not, if we wanted to hit ambitious global climate targets, these technologies would be necessary. And I looked around me and the people that I saw in this work weren't necessarily progressives because progressives were often the ones who were critical of these technologies. And I'm using technologies here in a kind of a neutral way, right? Both, you know, soil carbon sequestration, land-based management, um, but also then the infrastructure-based approaches. And that resolve has only been strengthened since the release of AR6, the, the recent IPCC report that says in even starker terms that if we want to get to 1.5 and even if we potentially want to get to two, we're going to have to deploy these, these solutions at a large scale. And that to me says that there's, there's a gap that if these things are going to be happening and, and the people who would shape them in ways to make sure that they are equitable and that they're not falling prey to moral hazard concerns are not in the room or not at the table, then there's a, there's a disconnect there that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like if, if folks who are rightly concerned about moral hazard uh, or, or some of the other risks that are associated with large-scale CDR deployment aren't at the table, then the folks not concerned about those issues will help kind of define the future of CDR. And that's a big risk in, in my view. You know, I think, like I said earlier, having multiple stakeholder viewpoints at the table and figuring out what, it, what does the future of carbon removal look like is really, really important. So what is Data for Progress's interest in the CDR field? What are you all trying to figure out in the context of your work advancing progressive causes? Yeah, so DFP does a lot of work on climate. It was one of the, you know, first organizations to put out platforms for a Green New Deal, has done a lot of organizing work around the Green New Deal and around climate policy generally that sort of, you know, uh, conforms to that framework of advancing equity and social services and all of these things that human society is going to need in order to adapt to a world that is changed by climate. And that is not just in terms of warming temperatures, but also in terms of new infrastructure regimes, in terms of new workforces, just all of the changes that we're going to see in order to tackle the climate problem and also respond to the climate problem. And so our interest is, is looking at carbon removal from kind of a systems perspective. I think as, as I was sort of you know, saying earlier, 
often folks get really excited about CDR and, and, and that's not a fault, right? We need experts who are working on CDR. We need experts who are working on solar PVs. We need experts who are working on transmission lines. But the question for a progressive organization like ours is, well, how do all of these pieces fit together? And how do we make sure that government approaches to these solutions are able to weigh these various priorities in a way that makes sense for all of society, but but also um, especially for the communities that are often underserved in policy generally, but also specifically in climate policy. And so our general approach to CDR is kind of to do two things. The first is to myth bust, to be able to provide information in a space that has a lot of various actors, you know, and there's a lot of information floating around and there's no kind of one set way of evaluating that information. So we try to do some of that. And the second is to outline a progressive vision for what carbon removal might look like that does not fall prey to moral hazards, that is not working in the interest of fossil fuel companies, and that is ultimately creating healthier and and more self-sufficient communities where needs are being met that have to do with carbon removal and climate, but also that don't necessarily. That's really great because I think some of the questions that I wanted to get into were first around some of the myth busting and just understanding, I guess, from a starting point, perceptions that exist around carbon removal. And then maybe later getting into some of the challenges that we see around the interpretation of CDR from from progressive groups and figuring out what, what does that progressive vision for CDR look like. So um, it's it's great to have you on the show to kind of get into both of these subjects. So maybe just to kind of start with with the first piece of your work, you know, when you do polling about CDR, what are you learning from the general public about what they perceive or understand about carbon removal? What's what's their starting point? And then how does support for CDR break down across political or geographic lines? Yeah, a great, great question. There are some surprises in in the polling, and there are also some things that, you know, everybody who's listening to this uh, podcast probably already knows. So to start with the obvious, most people have not heard of carbon removal. And many of those who claim to have heard about carbon removal and, and you know, maybe have read it somewhere, misidentify what carbon removal is selecting things like recycling or other sort of individual actions that people might take that advance sustainability, but that are not, you know, carbon removal. And so there's there's a real gap in understanding and kind of narrative around what CDR is and what it's useful for. When people are presented with information about CDR, generally perceptions are really good. And that is true across party lines, which is really exciting for a group that does work on all sorts of areas of climate because bipartisan support for a climate issue is 
not something we see as often as we would like to. And so that both Republicans and Democrats, as well as independents, show high favorability is something that's really exciting for us. And digging a bit deeper into, into some of those numbers, you might kind of look at progressive organizations sort of generally and see that there is a lot of discontentment with carbon dioxide removal. And again, for reasons that I think are entirely, entirely fair. But the vast majority of Democrats, at least, are supportive of carbon removal as a as a climate approach. And so I think, you know, we have to when we're talking about sort of the progressive space and CDR's role in discourse, there are these, you know, two discourses that overlap to some extent, but don't always. And that is what's happening among Democrats who are sitting around their kitchen tables or who are reading the news and organizations that are working on policy change. Yeah, and I, I understand as well that folks don't always kind of understand the difference between carbon removal, you know, CDR, and carbon capture and storage, CCS. How do you delineate between CCS and CDR? And why is it even important to do this in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. This is what I start all of my descriptions of CDR about. It's kind of taking two steps back and talking about CCS. I think a lot of folks, especially on the you know progressive end of the spectrum, have seen carbon capture and storage, which is a technology that can be affixed to a point source emission. So think about a smokestack of a power plant or even a you know cement or steel factory where you have plumes of of co2 pollution that you can kind of identify right as opposed to just if you're looking out your window and and hopefully you're not living next to a refinery um and so you know the carbon dioxide that's just in open air. So there's different, right? There's the concentrated, the sources of CO2, and then there's CO2 just kind of in the air as it disperses. And carbon capture and storage, CCS, aims to try and capture some of the emissions as they're coming out of that point source. So as they're coming out of the smokestack. And CCS is something that has been around for decades that has been lobbied for often by industry and that has promised high capture efficiencies on fossil fuel powered power plants and historically under delivered. And so progressives rightfully look at that and say there were promises made there were promises that weren't delivered and end up at CCS is a false solution. And CCS then gets conflated. The two terms are very, very similar. This is, you know, a very confusing space in terms of the acronyms that we use and the terminology. There's carbon capture and storage, which is what I was just describing. And then there's carbon dioxide removal. And what carbon dioxide removal is, is taking emissions that have already been put into the atmosphere, taking them out of the atmosphere and storing them permanently. 
And the IPCC indicates that we now need to both rapidly decarbonize, right? We need to be stopping emissions at their sources as quickly as possible and much more quickly than we have been. And at the same time, we need to be removing emissions that we already made because we weren't moving fast enough on decarbonization for the multiple decades where humans knew about climate change and didn't act because of policymakers dragging their feet and importantly, industry actors spreading misinformation and working against climate policy. And just to dig in on, on that a little bit, you mentioned that, you know, CDR is something that removes CO2 from the atmosphere and stores it permanently. Is there a growing kind of consensus around the permanence of, uh, of CO2 storage as it relates to carbon removal? Uh, are you seeing that conversation converge around this permanence issue? Yeah, I wish more consensus were being built on permanence. I think, especially in the policy sphere, there are real implications for governments, for taxpayers, and for communities on what permanence means. There was a really, really great article in Inside Climate News that was tracking state-level policy on geologic storage. So to sort of, you know, back up for those who are unfamiliar, you can either store carbon in, say, you know, soils or biomass. But it's kind of tricky there to always know how long it's going to be stored, or you can store it underground. And for the underground storage, the question is being raised, well, how long does it have to stay there? And who's responsible if it doesn't stay there for as long as we wanted it to? That liability question is really, really important. And in progressive states, for example, California, the consensus is, well, you know, 100 years seems to be sort of the benchmark we're kind of all getting around, not because 100 years is some magical number and beyond that carbon doesn't exist, but just that's, you know, the time scale within which people, human civilization can kind of think about things. There are also proposals for 1,000 years, and that, that's kind of a, a bit of a different question. Um, just in terms of how policy works. Will we even have the same governments around in a thousand years as we have right now? And so California and other states are looking at uh, making sure that the industries that are profiting off of carbon removal, right now what we have is a sort of you know voluntary market where companies can be paid to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and and then they sell them as credits. And California and, and other legislators are, are then saying, okay, well, you know, if that company is profiting off of, off of this industry, then fine, you know, they have to make sure that they're monitoring and they're like sealing up any potential leaks, like identifying potential problems ahead of time and, you know, avoiding, avoiding problems. And then there are other states like Wyoming and uh, West Virginia that are saying, actually, industries can kind of take carbon out of the atmosphere, but ultimately the government can take over that liability. And that's, that's a, a, a dangerous precedent, right? If you're a company and you're setting up 
say, direct air capture, one of these you know, in infrastructure-based ways of taking large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and you go into a project knowing, well, like, you know, the government will take over liability. Maybe you don't install the highest quality monitoring systems. And maybe you don't set aside as much kind of, you know, insurance funding for if something does go wrong, how to fix it, et cetera. And, and so all of this to say that we, we have not had this conversation at a national level, certainly. A lot of national discussions are just behind many of the states. And where it is happening at the state level, we're seeing this schism. It seems like there's a real need for clarity on the regulatory front around a lot of this and, you know, robust monitoring frameworks are needed. You know, we're hearing kind of announcements of new direct air capture facilities and other carbon removal deployments with some of this stuff kind of still up in the air. And I think that's really important role for policy, policymakers and, and other folks in, in the regulatory field to, to start figuring this stuff out. And this is where I, I, agree with some of the progressive skeptics of, you know, if this is going to be a climate solution, let's figure out all of these sort of buttressing policies that are necessary in order to make it so, right? To make sure that you're actually storing the carbon dioxide rather than using it for something where that carbon dioxide will then be readmitted, but things like that, that there are community protections, et cetera. These are, these are not, you know, unproven technologies, as some people like to say. There are direct air capture facilities around the world. There are, you know, soil carbon sequestration projects around the world. But it is something that we're relatively new at. And especially from a policy perspective, that means that we need to be intentional and we need to do things right the first time so that we set a really high standard for these technologies that are going to be a big part of the climate solution playbook. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I feel like I'm always kind of beating this drum that policy is probably the most important lever right now in scaling up carbon removal, especially at this critical stage, because it's going to be a lot harder to fix these problems when we're in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of tons of carbon removed. I think there's always going to be a need to iterate around policies and we're going to be learning as we go. That's something that is kind of unavoidable in my mind. But to the extent that we can build in some of these protections early on, I think we will benefit from that greatly down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And that that also comes up with, you know, some of the permitting reform conversations that we're having now um, where clean energy projects are having a hard time getting going. And the answer for some has been to say, okay, let's get rid of government regulations. And some, you know, tweaking is necessary to make sure that we're able to build big and build fast. But often when we get these ideas about infrastructural development, and especially if we want to do a lot of it over a short time period, communities are often the collateral for that. And that ends up blowing up in the long run in terms of, you know, communities get fed up 
with you putting industrial facilities in their backyards and not properly compensating them for it or not, you know, asking their permission for it and really engaging them in that process. And so there's both, you know, what policies and regulations are we putting in place, but also how are we encouraging companies, developers to go about policy processes that already do exist in really thoughtful and more community-centered ways to make sure that, you know, the public is happy, but also perhaps even more importantly, the communities around these projects are, feel like their voices are being heard and like they are represented meaningfully in these processes. Absolutely. And I'd love to actually get into some of that. Before we do, actually, just in terms of the public engagement and polling that you do, what are some of the other misconceptions that rise up to the surface when you talk to them about carbon removal? Yeah. Um, so as I think I was saying, you know, folks have heard the term carbon removal or kind of, you know, associate it with things that they have heard about. Um, and generally then, you know, sort of have a, a, a public or a, a positive perception of them, um, but also then confuse it with uh, recycling, with renewable energy, with sort of, you know, anything climate related. And I, and I think something that this tells us is that most voters, the question is not, you know, like this specific climate strategy, the question is climate or no. Like, do you want to move on climate change or is it not a priority for you or do you not believe in it? And so when we're thinking about how to message carbon removal, I think, you know, especially for Democrats that association with climate change is a really important one. There's good work from uh, Yale Climate Communications on, you know, climate change as a political cue, as a partisan cue. And even, even with the kind of climate change cue, we do see that Republicans um, are on board. But again, sort of, you know, people kind of misconstrue what, what these things are. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of the outreach you're doing with communities that are potentially going to be on the front line of carbon removal deployment? What is some of the history and experiences that companies and policymakers and other stakeholders who are interested in scaling up CDR need to be mindful of? This has been the bulk of our work for the past couple months is trying to dig into, well, what, what are communities going to think about projects? Again, it's useful to sort of know what voters are thinking in the process of passing policy. But once it's already passed, like the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act that passed late 2021 or the Inflation Reduction Act that passed just recently, in terms of implementing those policies at the agency scale, DOE now has to decide, okay, where are we going to put, you know, $3.5 billion for DAC hubs 
And how are we going to evaluate various projects that apply for this funding? And so for that piece, for the implementation piece, the most important constituency, I think, is the community. And often developers sort of approach the process of citing and constructing a project in the typical kind of identify a site, you know, go through the permitting and environmental review, then design the project, then consult the community, and then hire for the project. And what we're trying to conceptualize is, well, what if that were sort of flipped on its head? What if we could identify several different sites that have promise, right? You need to make sure that the sites that you might build your project in are actually suitable geophysically to the kind of project that you're setting up, right? Nobody's contesting that. But there are several sites around the country that meet those, those requirements. Identify those multiple sites. Go in and then consult. So instead of starting the permitting process right away for one site that you've identified, go in and start the consultation process. Talk to communities. What are their concerns? What are, you know, the things that they need in the community that extend beyond the project and start to think about what agreements like community benefit agreements, like project labor agreements, these kinds of things that tell communities we're not just, you know, paying lip service to doing, you know, reciprocity to, to giving you some if you, you know, give us some but that we are legally committing ourselves to, 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 these, to these promises. Then in an iterative process, design and build the workforce with communities that seem open to the idea. And some communities like automatically will not. They will say, you know, no, we don't want this project in our backyard. And that's a really good thing to know after a month of research rather than after three years of the permitting process that then goes into three years or more of litigation. So this is to companies benefit as well as, as communities. Go through this iterative design process of consulting communities. And we've sort of done kind of a, a trial run of this. We're obviously, you know, not a developer. We're not going to set up a, a direct air capture hub on our own. But as a proof of concept, we have taken some of the mapping that has been done by Carbon 180 in their getting DAC on track memo and looked at, okay, you know, where might a, a DAC hub be suited for going in and then talking to communities, you know, this is what director capture is kind of broadly. Here are the various like technological kind of pieces that comprise a DAC hub, right? DAC is not just one technology as your listeners probably know, but refer to kind of a suite of different technologies that all, you know, are infrastructure based ways of filtering carbon out of the atmosphere and talk through the various benefits, disbenefits of each of those pieces. And then here's sort of, you know, what people, what people are saying. And when we did this, uh, we kind of, you know, did a bit of priming ahead of time for ourselves of kind of a national poll 
what are the sorts of benefits that communities want to get out of projects and do benefits to communities actually help projects go through. We found that people were more likely to accept a project if it had a community benefit agreement, not just for their own community, but the general public viewed communities benefiting as a good thing and increased the level of support, even for somebody who didn't live in that community, right? And in terms of the the kinds of benefits that communities wanted to see, the 33% of folks said they wanted labor benefits, that that was going to be the most important thing. And second, most important at 29% was funding for services in the community. So mental health and substance abuse services, job training programs, youth outreach programs, things like that. And so with this sort of knowledge at the back of our heads, we asked communities. And so we've done, you know, uh, some community workshops in um, Texas and in Pennsylvania, and we're going to, you know, expand now beyond that as well. But we've also been talking to, you know, community organizations in a variety of states um, and trying to kind of understand some of these things at, at a really high level. And the things that we're hearing from folks are that extractive industries, and it doesn't matter what kind of extraction, extractive industries have lacked lasting legacies of harm in communities that people remember. And so even those industries that, you know, folks have benefited from in, you know, labor and economic terms, like people also remember that, you know, if they have been in the area for a long time, sort of, you know, some of the ecological impacts or some of the, you know, infrastructural impacts that projects from the past have had. And so even though we were talking about, you know, direct air capture, and we're doing these community workshops around direct air capture, because this is an area that Congress is interested in, and so we wanted to kind of provide some research so that DOE could act in, in the best way for communities. And we're hearing about steel projects and oil and gas projects and, you know, industrial projects sort of generally, mining, coal mining, things like that. So knowing that any sort of large-scale project is going to evoke feelings and associations from past large-scale projects is a good thing to know. And doing your research on what are the industries that have been there before? How did people perceive them? How did they treat the community? Was there a good relationship between the community and the project? A really, really good thing to, to have. And to provide kind of, you know, maybe one, one more finding is that we are, are hearing from folks that even at this early, early stage of consultation, where we're not a developer, we do not have a project plan in, in hand. We're kind of just asking questions about what a technology mix might look like and where and how. People are really excited to engage and are really, you know, open to engaging and are open also to it being kind of an iterative and ongoing process. And so there is definitely a lot of appetite 
for that at kind of the community level. I will, you know, caution some communities have research fatigue where they get asked all these sorts of questions all the time and nothing ever happens of it. Um, but we have paid people for their time and their expertise and have found generally that the folks are eager to engage. Well, that's good to hear. I, I really like this, this idea of flipping business as usual on its head here. And, you know, when you've identified sites with promise, instead of starting with the, you know, siting and permitting and all the kind of top-down things that you need to do, is to actually engage the community directly. Take an, this kind of iterative process with communities and establish agreements early on that I'd hope allow a carbon removal developer to actually, you know, after putting in that kind of front-end research and front-end engagement with communities, gives them the room to run. Is that a reasonable assumption to make? Yeah, absolutely. I think it it increases the likelihood that, you know, a relationship can be built with the community and that that process then can be more effective and beneficial for, you know, both sides. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a good business case for going about this the right way, which is, which is comforting. And there's also a business case for sort of, you know, policing each other in, in industry, right? Because we kept getting the question, well, where has this been done in the past and how did it go? And in the age of Google, firsts matter a lot. People were Googling during the workshop, certainly after the workshop, to try and figure out, okay, well, you know, what, what are the legacies that, that this industry has and how, how has that gone over in the past? And so it's not enough just to kind of, you know, do it right yourself, but you need to be looking at kind of the other actors that are around you and asking, you know, are they using the best principles for advancing equity and, and community engagement? And if not, know that that'll come back and bite you in the ass. It's, it's really a, a kind of, you know, sink or swim at this stage of early technological development that all perceptions about, about projects then tend to bleed. That's super important. I think we all have a stake in this getting done right. And you're absolutely right. Your intentions can be wonderful, but if the track record of the industry uh, is not there, that's, that's going to be really hard. And, and when I speak to companies in the CDR field, you know, questions often come up about how do they deploy their solution equitably, right? And they appear to want some kind of like playbook or blueprint on how to do this. Is that even realistic? You know, are there, are there themes maybe or lessons around community engagement, for example, or in other areas that can be broadly applied? I would say no, there's no like, you know, tried and true, like exact playbook and you just follow the steps and everything works out that unfortunately it doesn't work out in practice because communities are all very different and will have different needs, have different expectations, have different areas of concern, et cetera. But there is some really good work. Actually, the, the DOE funding application for the DAC hubs has a pretty extensive, like, you know, question and answer guide 
on how to set up community benefit agreements, how to do community engagement. And they have really kind of put in some of this legwork, the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, to consolidate some of these resources where they didn't before. And it's really exciting to see that that is now one of the things that project applications are going to be judged on is the extent to which companies have put together a really, really strong public engagement or community engagement aspect of their work. Um, We will also be coming out with some materials ourselves at Data for Progress in the next hopefully a couple of months. Um, So stay tuned on that. But there are certainly, there are ways to look at analog technology, similar technologies where, you know, there's maybe more of an established body of literature on, on how to do this right. It's really great to hear that there's going to be, you know, public engagement, community engagement principles as, as part of the evaluation process for something as large as the Direct Air Capture Hubs program. So finally, you know, where, where do you take the work you've done today from here? And, and how can people stay on top of your progress? You can follow me on Twitter. I, I tweet about our work, C-E-S-C-O-B-U. That's the first few letters of my first and last names. But also just following us our, on our website, we will be putting up a page that kind of consolidates all of the work that we've been doing on carbon removal. And going forward, as I mentioned, we'll be putting out kind of findings from these community workshops that we've been conducting and sort of lessons learned that hopefully can be applied beyond just the DAC hubs to, you know, insert technology name here. And we'll also be releasing a number of um, surveys that we've done nationally to try and gauge, well, how do we build kind of popular support for carbon removal and what are the ways that we shift policy as well as, again, the approaches to policy in order to make sure that, again, you know, everybody benefits both kind of, you know, communities, but also, but also developers. And one of the things that we'll be sort of, you know, working on, especially within that realm is looking at how federal funding can specifically provide funds for these kinds of community benefits. I think often in the carbon removal space, we think of, you know, moving along the, you know, technological readiness level curve and that that is kind of the most important role for federal funding is RD&D. And I think increasingly one of the things that we're hearing from both communities, but also from prospective developers is that to have designated funding for some of these other things, setting up a grocery store in, in a food desert, if that's what the community has identified as a need or, you know, social services or project labor agreements that, that set expectations for the size of workforce that is going to be created around a project that otherwise a developer doesn't feel all that comfortable, you know, making those promises at the beginning, but that, you know, these are sort of the auxiliary roles that policy can play. So all of that is upcoming um, and, and certainly follow us on our website or me on Twitter. 
Selena, thank you so much for the time today. I'm really excited about the work you've been doing and I'll be keen to keep up on all of the, the great work that looks like it's gonna be coming live uh, in the coming months around these issues that we discussed. I think it'll be a really tremendous resource for the space. So thank you for what you do and thanks again for your time today. Thank you so much, Nain. This was really great. And thank you again to Carbon Future for sponsoring this episode. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth.